0: what's going on you rogues rebels and renegades welcome to a brand new episode of the rogue country podcast thank you so much for tuning in today is episode 62 and we have the fabulous frank tanner on but before we get into that incredible talk with frank today we are brought to you by pick print screen printing they're a liverpool based family run hand screen printing company and i love these guys they do my t-shirts they do the rogue country t-shirts they do josh bettis's t-shirts so if you need band merch workwear business uniforms club or sports team wears or apparel lines please get in touch with them they use eco-friendly inks it's all done by hand and they're just an incredible company to work with i love them and you should go support them if this is your first time tuning into the rogue country podcast welcome we have some phenomenal guests in our back catalog that i urge you to go check out we've had incredible uk country and folk artists on we recently had my Crooked teeth on We've had Chris Dover on. We've had Josh Bettis on. And we've had some incredible American guests and international guests like Jamie Wyatt, Anthony Simkins from the Gems on VHS YouTube channel. So if you're just tuning in today, welcome and please enjoy the rest of this back catalogue. If you're a fan of live music, don't miss out on any of these incredible tours that are hitting the UK. We've been talking about American Aquarium. Their tour has been and gone and they fucking killed it. I was lucky enough to see them in Manchester and it was an experience. It was amazing. I got to run into Jody Davis from fargo railroad company as well which just made that night extra special but if you love live country and folk and roots music you don't want to miss these tours in march john r miller and jp harris are doing a co-headlining tour and it's just going to be incredible i can't wait to see these guys in manchester on the 9th of march they're in glasgow 10th in newcastle 11th in manchester 12th in nottingham and 14th in london you do not want to miss those guys also, in April, from the 1st of April, Mike and the Moon Pies are in the UK, and you do not want to miss these guys. They are just incredible musicians, incredible country artists, and it's going to be a hell of a tour. So, April 1st, they're in Newcastle. April 2nd, they're in London. April 3rd, they're in Nottingham. April 4th, they're in Manchester, and I'm opening for them. It's going to be incredible. And on the 5th of April, they're in Oxford, and I know Ax Connolly is opening for them. He's a friend of the podcast. You will not be disappointed. We're also working hard here at Rogue HQ to bring you some incredible live gigs. The contracts have been signed. We cannot say anything yet, so we're going to keep rolling on to these announcements. We've got two incredible Hank Williams shows coming up in September. On September 17th, the 100th year anniversary of the birth of Hank Williams, there is an amazing show at the Bunkhouse in Swansea featuring... Ashley Harding, Josh Bettis, and the Taff Rapids String Band. And on the same day in Birkenhead, I am hosting an all dayer with Brandon Ridley, Cold Hands, Young Devils, the Berner Band, and me. And it's just gonna be an absolutely incredible day of music that we're hitting two venues in two different parts of the UK and it's going to be phenomenal. Tickets are available now for the Swansea date. Thank you so much to everyone who's bought one so far. They are £10. They're available on Skiddle. You can find them on our Road Country Facebook. Beck and Head, it's a free all-dayer. Thank you so much to The Swingin' Arm for hosting us there. It's going to be an epic day, and we cannot wait to share in the love of hank williams and his music we have a lot more stuff in the works but we can't announce anything yet so please stay tuned and if you do want to support rogue country and our endeavors you can pick up a rogue country t-shirt from our band camp or you can also pick up the brand new rogue country mug by buying these merch items you help us keep putting on independent shows with incredible uk and american artists and international artists the best we can so head over to the rogue country Bandcamp, pick yourself up a shirt and a mug and help us spread the rogue word but let's get down to business today's episode is with frank Turner, the folk punk icon he released his ninth studio album FTHC, last year it's phenomenal if you've not listened to it check it out and i can't thank him and his team enough for making the time to sit down and talk with me ahead of his sold out tour we sat down with him in between his ipswich dates there was an issue with connection so at some point during this interview it drops out i'm gonna pop up again and we'll carry on with the rest of the interview but thanks so much to frank and not just making the time for one night but then to come back immediately the second night to finish the interview it really just shows how much of a fucking stand-up guy he is and this was a phenomenal talk to have so thanks so much to frank and his team for making this work so without further ado this is episode 62 of the rogue country podcast with mike west and frank turner Cool. Thanks so much. So tonight you're in Ipswich, I believe.
1: Uh, Ipswich, Rock City, the 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 fine and wonderful place that it is. Yes, we're. uh, It's been a long time since I played here, but we're back here tonight.
0: Oh, amazing! How's the tour been going so far? Uh, really good. Um, you know, it's been a
1: fun way to start the year. I mean, um, you know, 2022 felt like a transitional year in terms of live Mm. music and the pandemic and all that business, and um broadly speaking it feels like this year has started more normally yeah quote unquote than any than any uh, for a good few years yet uh, i like being on the road i like being on the road with my band and my crew um and uh also so we're, as i mentioned we're playing ipswich we sort of do a thing where we try and do one tour where we play the obvious places you know um mm. manchester Birmingham, London. and then another one where we go to the places that perhaps not every band goes so yeah. um uh here, here we are on Ipswich, and, uh, and it's nice. You know, people do appreciate it.
0: Yeah. No, that's amazing, because there's so many amazing venues in, like, every city or every town. You just kind of right. have to look for them and know where they are. And, you know, I don't think you're a musician who's made it, really, until you announce a tour, and there's someone in the comments being like, why haven't you played Warrington? Or yeah, just right. a random, spurious town, as opposed to all the major ones. So sure. I think yeah. I always enjoy seeing those comments of,
1: certainly so for the record i have played Warrington three times um so uh glad to picked that one um maybe sound cool but yeah i mean it's a funny thing because like actually historically um every band used to do it like um there's an amazing venue in uh, boston in lincolnshire called the glider Drome, and the post on the wall like in the 60s and 70s they had beatles sabbath Zeppelin, you know and and bands used to talk regionally and like I was fortunate enough when I started out to do some to do a bunch of shows with the Levelers, who are one of my favorite bands going on. But also, and, and friends. But they, they they we you know we were doing. I remember we did Lincoln, and I, and I'd never been to Lincoln before. And they were just like, if you want a long career, play the places that other bands don't because it will sustain you and it will show respect to your audience and blah blah blah. And um, I try and sort of pass that information forward. Like it's like, hey, there's some really really cool gigs around this country. Mm that almost no one goes to. Um, and and it's the, the audience is there. There's people who want live music there. You know, we just played Falmouth the other day. Nobody plays in Falmouth. It was so sold out in like an hour. And it was ram. We could have done like three nights. It was awesome.
0: Amazing. And I saw recently you got mm. um, two crows tattooed on your ribs, which is yes. one of the worst places to get tattooed. How are, mm. how are you healing? How are you holding up, especially playing live after those? <laughs>
1: Uh, the healings have been fine. The actual process, I mean, that was the end of quite a long process. I had four sessions to get them mm-hmm. done. Um, I tend to get my large pieces done by my friend Matt Hunt uh, in Birmingham. I used to run a shop called Modern Body Art. Um, now he tattoos from home. But uh, he's hes like a very dear friend of mine. So um, we get to chat and catch up. He's been to me for like uh, 16, 17 years now. So um, yeah, we get to catch up on things. But uh, um, it sucked. I mean, that was a, that's a grand <laughs> total of, I would say, 14 hours work there. Um, and uh, it's one of those things, I mean, you appear to be a tattoo person yourself, <laughs> but it's like with every bit that kind of gets done, you kind of think to yourself, I'll never get that bit of my body tattooed again. That bit's done. Yeah. You know, <laughs> move forward. Yeah.
0: No, it's amazing because I saw you and I was like, I hope that wasn't, I'm pretty fresh because I got this one on my forearm done, and then mm-hmm. went on tour pretty much straight away. And then the second I came back off tour, I had to go get it touched up because I just rubbed off the entire thing.
1: Right. I got the backs of my hands done about an hour before a show, which was <laughs> oh, an fuck? extremely dumb idea. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, but you, do you know what I mean by the heat press thing that they do sometimes when like my no? my friend Oliver did these, and uh, he like sort of microwaves a towel so it's really hot, and then when he's finished, he just like slams a hot cloth on it and um some tattooers kind of swear by this as a kind of processing thing and it sucks a lot but it does <laughs> reduce the swelling a lot oh
0: no so
1: um so i was like man i have gonna play a show in like an hour and it was like <laughs> literally across the street from the tattoo place it's a place i've been many times mm-hmm. and i was like you're an idiot uh and then he and then it kind of sizzled my hands in
0: Nice. it really sucked but i did do the show so yeah that's the main thing i remember i cleared i got this done on my hand and um, i made sure i was like i'm not gigging for i think a month around that so i was like i'll get that yeah. done if it's that's profitable. you see that's
1: that's intelligent forward planning <laughs> um which i heartily support yeah.
0: <laughs> but well, don't practice yeah. apparently <laughs> recently i saw you played the houses of parliament gig for the music venue trust yeah, yeah. What was that like? I know you've you've done some crazy gigs, Balmouth uh, yeah. under your belt and Warrington, so it's not the yeah, craziest thing, But it's got the Palace be up of here. Westminster. I mean, the thing is, like, the thing. I mean, it was weird, but
1: um, ultimately, like, I was I didn't go into it expecting it to be a regular gig. It wasn't. That wasn't the point. Yeah. Like, you know, the aim of the evening was very different. I was an adjunct to uh, uh, an, a different kind of initiative. You know, and like, I've, I've been doing what I can to help the Music Venue Trust, with their incredible work mm. for many years now. And um, uh, Mark, who runs the MBT, sort of gave me a bell and was like, bet you've never played Parliament before. <laughs> I was like, I've been arrested outside Parliament. Um, <laughs> uh, never charged. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, so he uh, he asked me to go down and do it. I, th- I mean, it was weird. I knew it was going to be weird. But the purpose of my being there was to just sort of, like, try and uh, turn some heads mm. Um get some influential bodies in the room and, and get them to shut up and pay attention essentially. And, uh, so I played the shouty numbers, if you know what yes. I mean? It's like, um, <laughs> I didn't play my song about Margaret Thatcher because, um, as, as much as, as, as quote unquote punk as that would have been to do that, it would have also completely like dynamited the aims of the entire evening. And it, there is a, you know, as, as, a, as a boring old man now, it's kind of like, if you want to kind of blow that kind of thing up, then maybe stand outside rather than inside too. I mean, it's just like, there's no point in fucking up all the work that they're doing. Yeah, uh, so, think, that I've, so that I've got something funny to post on Twitter.
0: Yeah, it, it's a hard line for like your values and like that inner kind of punk or inner kind of person of, that you want. Of
1: course. But by deciding to, by, by accepting Mark's invitation, I've already made my... Yeah decision about what you know I I, I don't know like there was um there was uh during the pandemic there was a lot of campaigning going on for independent venues and there was one meeting that had been put together with an influential government minister and of course given the times that happened to be a conservative minister and there was a very well-known musician who shall remain nameless um who was supposed to be at this meeting to convince the minister to give independent venues more money who like 24 hours before the meeting tweeted something about how he hoped that all Tories' children die or something like this. The meeting got cancelled. There wasn't another round of funding, and a whole bunch of people lost their jobs. Mm. But that guy got likes and retweets, yeah. and it's just kind of like, you know, you can you can do that, you can do one or the other, but you yeah. it, doing both at the time is just kind of the shitty thing to do in terms of the people who are actually campaigning yeah. to change things, um, which. Of which I might add, I'm not really one. I am somebody who sort of hangs around on the sidelines of that and helps when I can. But um, anyway, that's a long blah, blah, blah. Um, it was it was cool. I've ticked it off my list now. Yeah. Um, I doubt I'll do it again, but uh, I will go to my grave knowing that I have played um, quite near where they tried King Charles and found guilty of treason.
0: Well, that's the good thing. But I think it's a good point that, you know, when something, you know when something's greater than you know when it's to lend your voice to something and not just kind of satisfy that instant gratification. I like the quote you did. I think it was in the Metro, whereas it's "It's cooler to tell the story about the cool thing you did than a boring story about the thing you didn't do. And I think that's a really great approach (laughs) to not just kind of being a musician, the gigs you do, but life in general.
1: Well, I think, I mean, part of it is that like, and I'm... I'm launching down a kind of um, a contentious route <laughs> <Go for> on. <laughs> um, but like like I mean I think one of the things a big thing for me was that I got asked by Danny Boyle to play at the Olympic opening ceremony back in 2012 and I did um, and a fair few people from the quote-unquote punk scene kind of gave me some grief about doing that and, uh, and it just seemed really parochial to me mm. do you know what I mean it just seemed really I mean I'm going to use a provocative word it seemed kind of conservative to me <laughs> to say that I should turn that down because, like, how many times are you going to get asked that question? And I do remember rather volubly saying to one of the people involved, "It's like, well, next time your band gets asked to do the fucking opening ceremony of the Olympics, you can turn it down." Um, oh, have I still got you here? No, yeah. Oh, yeah, you're still hearing me, All right. Sorry, yeah, I froze for a second. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, is it you know when when your band gets asked to? Do it... Oh no, we've got a crackle no. on it. Sorry, I'm on venue Wi-Fi. <laughs> are we back in? Yeah, it's fine. Um, but yeah, so you know, I mean, ultimately, yeah, it's just it's kind of like, um, li- life is short, you know, yeah. and, and the world is enormous. And uh, I feel fortunate to experience a tiny percentage of it. And if I can, if I can up that percentage, then I will. Um, and, and ultimately, I t- just don't really give a fuck about what anybody else thinks about my decision making process. Yeah, too blunt.
0: no, totally. I think punk's one of those things i think where they can back themselves into a corner by setting too many limits because then it's like well is it punk to trademark your logo and then if you copied someone else's logo i'm sure that punk band would have something to say about it and it's yeah, one... yeah totally. but I, I
1: yeah i think that like to me a lot of the time like a, a lot of the kind of like ethical directors of punk rock come from very honest and worthy places and i still subscribe to an awful lot of them but they there's definitely, I, mean, I think this is true of almost any ethical directive, full stop, but it yeah. can metacise in extremists or in different contexts into something that's unhelpful. You know, and like, I just sort of, in, again, in my journey through life, like, many have been the times when I've watched people essentially booing their friends for achieving the thing that they said that they would try to yeah. achieve. And it's kind of like, what the fuck is that, man? Like, you know, if I, if I see a band that I like do well, then I'm stoked. Yeah. and that's there's nothing else to say on that topic yeah Good
0: no for them. no totally well the tour that you're on at the moment you've got lottery winners <laughs> yes and w- willswood boys um, at the moment and um, you're kind of not notorious because it's an amazing thing to do you bring out incredible bands to support and stuff what <laughs> was that obviously was it a kind of conscious process to be like i'm going to bring out you know new faces to these crowds and things because you've had like beans on toast and we've got a mutual and amigo the devil uh, you had over in the states um, i mean i like i mean
1: that there's a bunch of considerations about choosing support acts um you know i first of all i feel responsible for the evenings entertainment yeah do you know what i mean like i want it to be a good show i want everyone to enjoy all the bands I don't want anyone to have to kind of suffer through some bag of shite that a major <laughs> label paid to put on the bill or whatever. Um, uh, you know, a very long time ago, before I really knew what was going on, there was a moment in time in my old band. We had a tour where a band bought onto it and it was dreadful. And, uh, and I hated the experience. Um, <laughs> uh, so, uh, n- never done it since then. Um, uh, so, you know, there's that. You want to, you want cool bands. You want people to have yeah. fun. Um, I want to, I want to, share bands that i like you know like i want to um spread the word and like i think the lottery winner is amazing i think the whistle boys are amazing and it's also it's because like that's how i got anyway
0: and that is where we lost connection but frank being the counsel that he is agreed to reschedule and we talked to him the following night and this is the rest of that talk enjoy Awesome, but thanks so much for making the time again. And...
1: Yeah, I felt bad about it yesterday. So. No,
0: no worries at all. How was last night in Ipswich? Oh,
1: it was great. It was really good. Um, But uh, I was particularly... Ipswich is about 45 minutes away from where I live, so um, uh, it was like I got off stage, I jumped in my car, I drove home, uh, and that has been very nice.
0: Oh, amazing. Like, I was going to ask, because I wasn't sure how close you were to home and stuff, when you're off, like, have a day off on tour, is there anything you kind of aim to do in between or did you do anything nice to stay that kind um, of relaxed uh, you
1: as i get older uh, as a as a 41 year old man now like my days off i tend to do as little as humanly possible <laughs> um you know we still put on i i think a show that's as physically um uh taxing as it's ever been mm. you know physically energetic and like you know we're playing two hours we're doing 26 songs in a set in a minute and that's that's a lot jumping around mm. running around all the rest but also just my voice you know what i mean it's like so um we call it slug life <laughs> Slug life, but like we generally speaking on on days off people you you know usually i don't get to come home in a day off we have a hotel room but i tend to kind of like um sl- the sort of the opening act of slug life is like do not disturb sign on the door the dressing gown that comes in the hotel room <laughs> if, if if there is one goes on room service phone on do not disturb <laughs> netflix yeah silence kind of thing that's what i do i mean some of the you know my ben who plays the my man for example is like uh he he loves to kind of chat around towns and see stuff and all that kind of thing and that is cool but it's like i it's particularly this this little motherfucker's got to stay got to stay well
0: yeah no definitely is there anything you specifically yeah. do i was just watching um, a hot ones episode with brian cranston and he right. talked about how he did this a uh, run on broadway and uh, Monday was, he didn't say a word. It was like complete voice rest where he literally didn't speak all yeah, no whispers. He communicated by paper. And that was oh. how we kind of got through those Broadway shows. Is there anything you do in particular? Is this kind of, um,
1: I, I don't, I know that some people do do the total voice rest thing. That's never quite, for me, it's more like an engine. My voice is more like an engine that needs to be kept ticking over a little yeah. bit. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, my voice would be, cause I, my, you know, I sing extremely forcefully should we say sound <laughs> guys the world over tend to go fucking hell when I start going. Um, <laughs> but, uh, um, uh, yeah, I don't do like full voice rest or anything, but like, you know, I, I, I drink three liters of water minimum a day when I'm on tour and, you know, there's tons of kind of like pills and potions and certain types of tea and all this kind of thing, which help. but I spend like, it's one of the the less glamorous parts of what I do. And I think anybody, who does what I do for a living would agree with this. Like, I spend a really quite tedious amount of my day thinking about my voice. Yeah. And, like, I sincerely hope that I will be able to do this for the rest of my life. But if somehow the universe told me that I couldn't, the one relief would be I, I'd go out and buy a packet of cigarettes immediately. <laughs> you know I mean, like, find, uh, yeah, it's just like, it, it is, it is, it gets quite dull being that obsessed with mm. one part of your body forever. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I know, like, I've Mm -hmm. had, you know, time away from playing live and stuff, and I don't know if you've ever had the thought, as you stepped up to the mic for the first time that day, like, what if nothing just comes out? Oh, yeah,
1: totally. Well, I mean, to a degree, I feel like that about every aspect of playing live. If we have, like, three weeks off, we get to the first show, and I'm like, how the fuck do you do this again? Um, and it comes back. But, I mean, and that's a common thing, I think. You know, like my, my wife used to be an actor, and she would say that she had a similar thing. If she hadn't done a show for a little while, it would be like, what the fuck am I doing? Mm. Um, so, you know, it's it's definitely a, a thing. Um, uh, I think that one of the things I, I post, because I sort of had a fair amount of time off at least doing it full time over the pandemic, obviously. Mm. And um, I actually went back and had some fresh vocal coaching for the first time in 20 years. Really? Last year, just because I was I was kind of struggling to get back up to speed again, which is partly having two years off. And it's partly um, just getting older, you know? I mean, your voice changes get older. I'm sure you know. But, mm. And um, just kind of figuring out kind of like, it's not, I wasn't getting vocal coaching to kind of learn how to sing. I know how mm. to sing, but it's more just like maintenance. Do you yeah. know what I mean? It's just like how long can we keep this motherfucker going for? (laughs) Um, But yeah, thankfully now I feel like, you know, that, that fallow period has come to an end. I mean, I've got a very busy year. Yeah.
0: No, that's awesome. Without trying to get like a free (laughs) voice lesson, was there anything you took away from those things that you immediately became staples or changed Um, how you perceived how you like maintain your voice?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to sort of pick any one specific kind of technical thing or whatever, other than I would say the drinking water thing. I mean, I always tried to stay hydrated, but I'm now like, I have an absolute benchmark of minimum three liters of water a day, um, which means I spend a lot of time pissing, um, which is what everyone wanted to know. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's more than you think three liters yeah. of water a day. It's, it's, um, Uh, it's pretty crazy. And and I usually actually aim for four, you know, but uh, I think, I mean, I guess one of the things is like, you know, and again, this is just a function of getting older is that like nowadays I start my, my preparation for going on stage starts 90 minutes before we go on stage. Mm. And like, I can remember being like 23 and like rolling in (laughs) from the van or from the merch table or whatever, and just walking straight on stage and blasting out an hour and a half set and not giving a fuck. And, um, I just can't do that anymore, <laughs> you know, uh, or at the very least I could probably do it once. And then the following day I'd be totally screwed. Um, so, you know, there's, it's, it's just, it's part of the deal really ultimately. Um, you know, I, I definitely take a lot better physical care of myself now than I used to. Again, I, I do a fair amount of kind of like working out and cardio yeah. actually, when I'm not on tour, which again, I never did that when I was younger. Okay. And like the very idea would have been like, I'm not that kind of guy sort of thing, (laughs) but it's not for kind of, I'm not like a gym bunny. I'm just trying to sort of like stay coherent.
0: (laughs) Yeah. That's the thing. It gets to a certain point where you aren't trying to get in shape. You're just trying to stop the wheels from coming off.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's, that, that is a a sad function of, of the passage of time, but like getting older is better than the alternative as they say
0: yeah no totally and going back to what we were talking yesterday eh, before we kind of got cut off um, you've helped loads of artists obviously you've got the lottery winners oh. and loads mm. of boys on tour with you at the moment you've toured with folks like amigo the devil over in the states yeah is there anyone is there any kind of you know idea or thought process behind who you bring on tour and obviously you want to kind of help kind of pay it forward in a way yeah those younger acts
1: that's a big part of it, and I, um, I started saying this yesterday, but I'll say it again while we're on a good connection. Um, you know, I got anywhere in, in music by opening for people. I mean, I don't want to disavow the, the radio and the and the press and stuff that I did have, but the vast majority of my success came from opening for other bands, particularly in the States where I did this. I had about a three-year period where it just felt like I was opening for like Social D, um, Dropkick Murphy's, The mm. of Offspring, just endless, endless tours, and and it was it was great. It was a good discipline as a musician, all the rest. But uh, you know, I want to pay that forward. In fact, Noodles from The Offspring, quite specifically, when I sort of said to him, "How do I ever repay you?" He said, "Just take out bands you like on tour, help people out," mm. um, and so I did. Um, and uh, you know, so that's a big part of it. Um, and like, I sincerely, ah. you know. Music is not a competition. Music was never a competition. No. Um, and particularly now with the internet, it's ludicrous to suggest that there's anything 0 sum about music. It's a competition. I want everyone who's in the band to do well, actually, because it's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wish everybody success. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I, I can't... To, to pick the obvious example, I can't stand the music of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, but I hope that they go from strength to strength. <laughs> yeah. and I hope that they make their fans happy. And I hope they live long and productive lives. Um, you know, so I like... Um, uh sorry where was i going with this um you know you want to you want to um i i sincerely hope that one day like a band that, like I've been saying this on stage on this tour, like one day the Lottery winners, I'm going to be opening for them on, on, on their stadium tour or whatever. Mm. And first of all, I'm not fully joking about that. I think they're completely incredible and they're going to go places. But it like nothing would please me more than to see a band that I took out on tour become infinitely more successful than, than I've ever been. I think that would be superb. Yeah. You know. Um, so there's all of that. It's also, there is a degree of cura- curation as well, you know, um, in... In the sense, I feel I feel kind of responsible for the evening's entertainment. I want mm. people to enjoy the show. There's also, you know, you've got to think about the evening as a kind of holistic event in the sense that, like, so, for example, we have had one or two tours in the past where you have, like, a punk band first on, and mm. then, like, a downbeat, downbeat acoustic act, and then us, and it doesn't quite make sense in terms of the overall management of mm. the evening, do you know what I mean? Whereas, by contrast, there's a band from Minneapolis called Cuckoo Kangaroo, who are kind of completely demented children's entertainment (laughs) explosion it's quite difficult to describe them when I told my booking agent I wanted to take them on tour as an opener he thought I was having some kind of psychotic break (laughs) Um, but actually they were the single greatest support act we've ever toured with because like their entire thing is crowd participation and they like by the end of that half an hour slot everyone including the kind of cynical old dickhead t-shirt <laughs> at the back are doing like dinosaur impressions or something and everyone's loose and everyone's smiling and on, when we talk with them like our shows like the room would explode the second we hit the stage because everyone's already ready yeah. for that you know somebody has to do the work of getting people to kind of shake off their mm-hmm. their nervousness and their shyness and if it's not a support act then it's me you know so <laughs> there's, there's there is a sort of yeah. self-interest in there as well yeah
0: no that's awesome and obviously with lottery winners and willswood boys you've kind of taken that from the stage as well and you help produce both records uh, records for both of them yeah I've, well, to- I've i've
1: guested with with lottery winners um mm-hmm. their their producer who's also their manager is a guy called tristan who m- produced england keep my bones and is an and therefore an old friend of mine um uh, and I've sung on a couple of songs of them. I produced the Wills of Boys record. I produced for Pet Needs as well. Mm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm doing more and more production work. I. Uh not every band that I work with in the studio is a band that I'm going to tour with, but, like, a fair few of them, mm. you sort of fall in love a little bit while you're working on a record. Like, certainly you listen to it a lot while you're yeah. comping vocals and shit, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, I know all the words to the World's Boys album. <laughs>
0: nice. Like, there's been... Um, Rick Rubin's had some interviews recently, and there's been a lot of talk about his production style because he can't play instruments. He says he doesn't even know how to run the engineering <clears throat> software and stuff. Yeah. Is there anything that you kind of have when you work with a band from your mind as a producer or is there anything that you're trying to hit when you're producing the record it,
1: it 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 totally depends on the band in question and it should do yeah to be blunt like i mean there are obviously certain producers who like have a sound or whatever i'm i mean i don't know i'm largely pretty suspicious of that i mean steve albini is kind of an exceptional case in many ways but nevertheless it's like Bands go to Steve Albini, sound like Steve Albini, which is a thing. He calls himself an engineer to his credit, and like mm. I, I adore a lot of his work. But like, um, you know, to my mind, the the best description of what a producer does is that you're you're the coach, you're the Mister mm. Miyagi, or whatever you want to think about it. And like, my job is to make any individual band be the best version of themselves. Um, and sometimes that's a question of um, suggesting things particularly for younger bands who might not know some of the kind of technical things that can be achieved in the studio Mm. and all the rest of it you know um to pick the office example a lot of bands like they're like oh we'd never play with click tracks and it's like oh you want to play with the click track because (laughs) it's gonna it's actually contrary to what you think it's gonna make you sound more kind of together and energetic actually um uh um you know or double tracking vocals or guitars or whatever it might be so there's some of that but there is a big degree one one of the things i find interesting about being a producer is that you have to learn to put your ego away Mm. a fair amount of the time because ultimately it's not your decision and i'm so used to being the the guy in the driving seat when it comes to making records when i'm making my own records it's Mm. like no sorry this is how this fucking song goes and like i've had situations where i'm like you know like, um, I I threw up a whole arrangement for one of the Willswood Boys songs when they, they came in and we laid down the basics and I spent for fucking ever layering up guitars and like string samples and all this sort of shit. And they just came in and they were like, nah, it's not the one. And it was just like, but, but, and they were just like, sorry, it's just not how that song goes. and And you have to go, cool. Okay.
0: Yeah. Mm. And have you produced most of your records as well, or have you worked with producers um I've band? worked
1: with the the first two solo records I did, I did with Ben Lloyd, who's my guitarist in, in The Sleeping Souls, and I would say that, that was a joint effort. Mm. Um, then, you know, then we, we so just quickly working through stuff, Poetry the D, we did with Alex Newport, but like all of the arrangement work we did before we got to the studio. Mm. Um, uh, inkling Bones we do with Tristan again, but I mean, again, I've always sort of been pretty, I was pretty hands on with the arrangement ahead of time for that one. And we didn't have very much time we had, like, we did that record in like eight days, you know. Um Back Heart was kind of the exception because that one we did with Rich Costier and that was very much a produced record, which was a new experience for me at the time and one that I found quite punishing. Um, it wasn't the most fun making mm-hmm. that one. Uh Positive Songs, we arranged ourselves and recorded that record in six days. Again, that was sort of on purpose. Do it quickly. Be More Kind was a whole experiment with like deconstruction, which I did with um, Austin Jenkins uh, and Josh Block. um, And that was great. uh, And they were very hands on with that. And then FTHC again, I sort of did all the arrangements myself during lockdown, really. So like it's only recently that I've had the the ability to begin thinking about the technical side of things. And for my next record, that's going to be a new thing as I'm going to be the one actually picking microphones and shit like that you know um and that's that's new for me but uh um yeah i've been involved in kind of like the arrangement side yeah. of it for a long time
0: has there been anything in terms because i think arrangement <clears throat> you know especially coming from like a singer songwriter background people think that the song's done as it is and then they never really kind of reassessed arrangement the arrangement again mm. is there anything you've learned or taken away that you'd strongly suggest like deconstruct and Rebuilding build like, things. Right? Yeah.
1: I mean, the first thing is that I should mention at this point, the sleeping souls, you know, like we do a fair amount of arranging stuff together, you know, mm. generally speaking, I'll write a song vocals on guitar and I'll have a sort of a starting direction at the very least for where I think the arrangement should go. Sometimes I have like, this song goes like this, here are the parts. Mm. And sometimes it's like, Hey, let's jam this around and see how it goes. And usually it's somewhere in between those two. Um, but I mean, I think we've kind of reached a pretty good place as a collective now to answer your question which is that like we try and work on the principle like there's no ideas that aren't worth trying yeah you never know um and like a lot of the time it's cool this is the thing I actually learned off Scott Hutchison funnily enough um uh god rest his soul we were chatting a lot um when they were making pedestrian verse I was making mm. tech like heart, and we were um we used to communicate a lot um sort of uh, late night phone calls and text messages and stuff but the, one of the way things that that frightened rabbit did on that record was they kind of they write a song arrange it park it and then imagine it was someone else's song and that they were doing a cover of it mm. um you know because the point of doing cover obviously is to find a new soul yeah. song and to come in from a different direction and like and the thing that's cool about that is that the original still there do you know what i mean that's still there but you come at it in a completely different way and it might be, you might go, fuck me, this is how the song goes. And you might go, yeah, that's terrible. Back to plan A. And more often than not, what happens is you keep a couple of little yeah. of things become apparent. But I think it's quite a good discipline. you know. And for myself, I try and make sure that there's always like a solo version of a song that I can play. I'm really focusing on that on this record, actually. Um, you know, I'm actually considering the merits of trying out some material at some open mic nights near me (laughs) awesome (laughs) well just and like unannounced and just see because again there's always i've always got this bee in my bonnet about the fact that like the material that i put out will be judged as being somebody's 10th album and they've for obvious and inescapable reasons but there's part of me that's curious to know how would it go down to a completely fresh audience virgin Mm. audience you know what i mean i'd still want that to be impressive i guess would be the way but yeah i just think that it's cool to try all different things and you know try slapping a capo on and playing in different quarter versions or a different key or whatever just just feel out where a song can go
0: mm. no that's amazing i think what you're talking about with open mics is a really interesting boy like i'm a fan of stand-up comedy and i follow you know they start off a kind of open mics or they drop in and do like five minute sets in front of a completely cold audience and then they build yeah. it from there and with musicians it's kind of you write the song in isolation and then if you feel it's a keeper, it, you go out and play it in front of people. If enough people kind of do it, gets on the album, it builds that way. But to have a more organic reaction with an open mic and to do that kind of things are really interesting. Yeah. Good ideas for
1: it. It's yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned stand up comedy actually. I have a whole bunch of friends who are stand up comics or, or who work in that world. And I'm I've long been fascinated by both the parallels and the differences mm. between the two. And like I, I watch a lot of stand-up comedy um I uh, I will never ever attempt to be a stand-up comedian God fucking damn it but like there's an interesting thing watching kind of about kind of like narrative arc mm. on the one hand which and sort of callbacks and things like yeah. that which is definitely something I've paid attention to as somebody who talks between my songs but also you know that if you want a masterclass and dealing with problematic audience you want to you want to check out some stand-ups, you know yeah. what I mean? But um, a friend of mine, Andrew O'Neill, who's an amazing stand-up, um, he ran a comedy club in London for a long time. And the whole vibe was that it was like it, it was for new beginners. Mm. It's like, you know, if you've never done it before, you're welcome here. But they pretty regularly have some pretty big names who come down and do, like you say, sort of five, ten minutes of new material to see what landed. And it's a good discipline. And it's like, shit, yeah, there's, there's a reason they do that. It's a mm. smart move, you know? Maybe maybe I should do that too.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting because I think, you know, as a comic gets bigger, it doesn't really matter what they say, it becomes the person. Like I, I recently saw John Mullaney in Manchester and it feels like he's at that level now where whatever he did, it's John Mulaney, so people are going to laugh, people are going to say he killed it. Okay, but, and
1: I love John Mulaney, incidentally. Yeah. He's a funny motherfucker that yeah. dude.
0: But if, you know, you can't make people laugh in five minutes, it doesn't matter if you are John Mulaney or you are just like someone right. else, and I think you can be a victim of your own success. And it's the same with musicians, where you know you could release a song that you may not think holds up, but because of who the artist is, an right, audience absolutely. will.
1: Well, I mean, I sort of I don't really want to kind of get into a slangy matches now, but. Like there are some popular bands who some, they come up with a new record and they get all the plaudits because of course they fucking do and they sell a bunch of records, but this part is like, what is this fucking horseshit? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's like if this was a debut record, no one would be paying any attention at all. Mm-hmm. And that kind of I don't want to say haunts me, but like I I do think that it's it's not a bad discipline to say how would this go over if no one had ever heard anything I'd done
0: before. Mm. Yeah. No, it's an amazing thing. And one of the things that I really took away from stand-up comedy was being comfortable in silence because as a musician, when you get on stage, you just want to try and fill it with as much noise as possible. But if you do need to talk to the crowd or take a breather and just kind of take it in, having, seen stand-up comics, take that kind of space and work with yeah, in between the bits was a really interesting thing to see.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm.
0: But who are some of your favorite uh, stand-up comics? I'm, I've, I've just recently seen that. So John Mulaney on the tuesday and i saw bear crash on the saturday so it was a really fun week in manchester yeah
1: yeah nice i mean i'm a big john maloney fan um
0: uh
1: i've got a I, I really like bill burr i think he's a mm. very funny man i think that obviously like he's pretty sort of like sails close to the wind a lot of the time i think <laughs> he has the intelligence to pull that off yeah um, it's one of those things where you slightly wonder whether everybody in the audience is quite as in on the joke as you'd want them yeah to. uh but nevertheless he's a funny son of the bitch that guy mm-hmm. um uh i mean i like a lot of kind of classic stand-up as well sort of richard pryor mm. stuff from back in the day that sort of thing um uh oh what what is his name oh god damn it um i can never remember his name his most recent or well, the most recent special of his that i saw was one all about having a kid i like jim jeffrey's funny a very funny man as well uh norm Macdonald, by the way i'm also a big fan yeah. um uh it, mike Babiglia.
0: oh yeah name
1: mike Pabilia. that's who i was trying to think of mike Pabilia. and i'm a huge norm mcdonald fan as well i also really it's controversial but i'm a dave Chappelle fan as well i think he's a very funny man again like he sells incredibly close to the wind and he's obviously sort of pretty much like decided to nuke his own career for various reasons lately um but uh you know i don't feel the need to agree with everything that a piece of art i'm consuming says
0: yeah no totally like Because the Dave Chappelle one's weird. Like, that's how a few of my friendships kind of spawned in high school was we were kind of, I had a friend and we were kind of in the same group, but we were on like the other sides of like the spectrum of our friend group. And it was the Chappelle show in his early standup that Mm. we kind of clicked. I was like, oh, you like that stuff too. So I do have that soft spot for him, but it has just been weird to see him kind of nuke his own career and watching his like last specials. It's like, Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting thing, and we're straying into controversial territory here. But like, there there is a moment where I start feeling a, quite a big generational divide mm. with myself on the other side of it, which is an interesting f- new feeling for me. But like, you know, I went to the Sensation exhibition when I was a kid, and like, there was a huge thing that it was the the, the world of progressive politics was very much about kind of blowing up taboos when I was mm. young and in my formative years, and it was very much. You expected and wanted and cheered on an artist who didn't give a fuck and, and did whatever the fuck they want. And that was bred into me pretty hard. And I'd still subscribe to that to a pretty large degree. And I still think that, um, you know, there is this kind of modern idea of which I'm arguably a proponent and I will hold my hands up that, that punk rock should be nice in some way. Mm. I'm not sure that that's historically accurate. Um, you know, of course, having said all of this, I'm not particularly a fan of needless cruelty. Um, uh, and, and, uh, or, you know, anything like that, or like, sort of like, cruelty of any kind, really, actually. Um, you know, but at the same time, it's kind of like, there is a part of me that like respects, an artist's right to do whatever the fuck they want and to be and to, and to explore their art, you know? And I do think that the world that we live in now where there's a sort of, a lot of younger people seem to have a sense that the, the kind of the public has a right to sort of curate an artist's output is slightly troubling for me. The public has a right to not consume an Mm. artist's output. Absolutely. Of course. Um, And always has done, but like, I'm not sure i I'm, I'm never comfortable with the idea of telling an artist you may not do this or that. No. It's like, fuck off. Like, yeah. that's not what an artist is, you know, um, is how I feel.
0: Yeah. No, I, I think the same. And I think with Chappelle, <clears throat> the thing for me as well as a comedy fan, it, what he was saying just wasn't funny and it did turn to cruel and it was yeah uh, yeah
1: and people talk about that you know i think there is a a, a strong point to be made about punching down and all that yeah. kind of business as well yeah. i don't know i mean we we should move on from this topic yeah, yeah no but, yeah
0: totally but yeah,
1: yeah. i like I say I, I sort of like i feel like it's it's there's, there's something in there's something i find quite empowering to me to watch somebody who doesn't give a fuck what people think and just makes the art they make i think that's kind of cool
0: yeah, no, totally. But going on to kind of fan power and audiences and stuff, mm. you've said before that you don't like the word fan in terms of when it comes to yourself and things like that. And I think that's oh. really interesting because the word fan does create division and does kind of create like yeah. a hierarchy when it should be a lot more kind of communal or back and forth to it. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you yeah. know.
1: Uh i guess these days i would recognize that the different people have different takes on this and that's fine but it was like i remember as a kid like um i just wasn't interested in the sort of oasis take of being in a band mm. and like as i've sort of grown into some respect for that band actually as i've got older but i hated them when i was a kid partly because it was just shoved down your throat mm, when, yeah you know i was i was 13 in 1995 you know what i mean it was a appalling time to be a teenager who wasn't that sold on Britpop. Um, but um, uh, I can see your cat climbing up in the background. That's rad, yeah, but...
0: I've just decorated it. So if he ruins anything, I'm going to see my ass. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, um, but you know, but but I think, you know, their entire shtick, very consciously, uh, was to be rock stars, you yeah. know. And I just always found that hugely alienating. I was like, who gives a fuck? And, and it was just... You know, part, I, w- I was not cool as a kid. I was a- extremely alienated and unpopular and isolated and all the rest of it. And anything that brings that kind of high school cafeteria pecking order thing yeah. back into art is extremely disinteresting to me. Mm-hmm. And um, by contrast, you know, at least on paper, at least ideologically, punk rock was not about that. And it was about this idea of community and communication mm-hmm. within community and... Um, you know, I think that Malcolm McCarron said a very interesting thing a long time ago about how um, there was more in common between punk rock and folk music than most people would originally think. Yeah. And he said that before this sort of folk punk thing that's happened in the last 15 years happened. I thought that was a smart thought because it is this idea of community music that's less about ego and more about discussion, for want of a less pretentious word. Mm. You know, And so, you know, if you, if you just refer to a body of people as the fans, it's, it's just you're very quickly... Your are Rose, do you know what I mean? And it's like, <laughs> and um, with no disrespect to anybody who does like him, Axl, Guns and Roses have always represented like everything I hate about music to me. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, I'm not a fan, I'm afraid. But I, like, you know, they just, it's just like, oh, whatever, you know, like, and, and there's this, this, it's like, it's, it's this idea, this feeling that you get and you get, I feel like I get this a lot with quite a lot of modern kind of pop music that like, you know, like I get this when I watch Black Eyed Peas videos on the very rare occasions <laughs> when I do that. It's just like here is a glimpse of a party to which you are not invited and never will be. <laughs> and there seems something kind of like faintly, kind of like almost like self disrespectful about people who then press their face up against the glass and go, mm. "Wow." It's just like fuck those people. Yeah. I don't want to be those people. I don't want to hang out with those people. I don't want anything to do with. And I'm not talking about Black Eyed Peas here. I mean, again, good luck to him. But like that, just that, that sort of self-consciously exclusive cool to the bullshit is just just i just think it's gross and i don't like it and if people disagree with that they're more than welcome to to um to engage with it but for me it's just kind of like i don't want to go to your party It, it just appears not to have crossed your mind um you know what i mean and uh so yeah so um Uh, yeah, so so talking about the fans and like, you know, I love the fact the first hardcore show I ever went to, the first band finished and just jumped over the barrier into the crowd and the second band jumped out of the crowd (laughs) and picked up instruments and started playing. And it was, there was something very striking about that fact, Mm. you know, that really made a huge impact on me Um, and made me think about what music is and what the communities around music are supposed to be. Yeah, but yes, I don't like the web fan. Yeah.
0: No, definitely. <laughs> and I think it's like it's hard, I think, especially with artists either coming up or want to forge their own identities. Because you do have <laughs> artists like Bowie or Lemmy say that you know no one wants to see a guy in jeans and t-shirts performing. But sure. then there's a huge you do want to see yourself in the artist, you do want to see that Restore. kind of everyman.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think clearly some people do want to see people in jeans and t-shirt performing. <laughs> so, I mean, Bruce Springsteen sells a yeah. lot of records. Um, but here's <laughs> the thing, like, I mean, Bowie's a funny one for me. Like, I wasn't a fan when I was a kid. I have come much more mm. to his artistry as time goes by. And, and like, you know, he was smart as fuck and he, knew, and he was... Knew exactly what he was doing and so on and so forth. I guess in some ways it's almost like he's a dangerous example because, like, there's not many people who can yeah. pull off things. <laughs> and to be blunt, I don't think Mark Bolland pulled it off to pick an obvious <laughs> example. You know, um, and uh, it's just kind of like, you know, th- again, each their own. Yes. And, and, uh, and like, you know, I think, for example, like the whole thing of, um, Orville Peck, or whatever the way that he's producing what he does, I think is really interesting and I think it's kind of cool. Mm. Um, but it's just, I, I don't know, it's like, I don't, I just don't like snobbery, is, yeah. the, is the bottom line. <laughs> and it's like, I think, I don't think David Bowie was even remotely a snob. In fact, from everything I've read about him, he was quite the opposite. So he found a way through this morass, mm. um, you know, clearly. So, but like, I, I've just, I've met a lot of people in bands who have been gigantic up there on us, and I just think there it is.
0: Yeah no but i, I think that's why i really enjoy about kind of your perspective and you know kind of declaring that you obviously you have your open email address that people can just kind of write to and i felt like the gathering off your new record was an anthem to kind of reinforce that viewpoint but was there a thought process or inspiration behind having that open channel and making sure that you got that point <clears throat> across to people
1: I mean, it's partly everything that we've just been talking about. Yeah. There were some examples. I mean, I always go back to the fact that in in my kind of first flush of punk rock, Euphoria, um, you know, I wrote to Henry Rollins and Guy Pachioto. Well, I wrote to Fugazi. Um, mm. and this was very early days of the internet, but they both had email addresses that I found on websites or record sleeves. Um, and they both wrote back. And then I wrote a handwritten letter to um, Chris Hanna, who is the singer in a band called Propagandi, who mm. wrote, Canadian an anarcho-punk man. And I wrote him a handwritten letter because they had a mailing address in the sleeve to how to clean everything. And he also replied with a handwritten letter. Um, and I'm still telling those stories now. And that was um, coming up on, it's 25, 30 years ago now, do you know what I mean? And they were yeah. life-changing for me. And but partly because it sort of brought that barrier down, you know, it was mm. like, these are just normal people. Um, and, then, and, how, and, and that, you know, Punk rock, DIY, anyone can do it. You don't need to go to music school or be from Mars yeah. to do this. You can just do it. And I, that and, and and that also then bl- blends into the sense of, of punk rock as a kind of welcoming place or a safe space, to use a modern cliche. Mm. But like, um, you know, just this idea that, as I say, I felt very alienated by everything and everybody else. And then I found this place where the only barrier to entry was showing up. It was like, you found us, sweet, you're in. Do you know what I mean? And like, mm. that was hugely... Uh, that was very moving to me as a kid. You know, it was the first real sense of acceptance I ever felt anywhere was mm-hmm. going to punk shows. Um and uh so yeah, so I mean it's just it's kind of like I want I want to pay that forward as well. Yeah. It's funny, the first Lost Evening Festival that we did in 2017, um, which was pretty kind of wing and a prayer. Like we had no fucking idea what we were doing. It was like let's throw this at the wall and see if it sticks. And um, and we did, and um uh uh a very old and very good friend of mine kind of we were standing in this kind of like there's a sort of like eagle's nest bit of the, mm. the roundhouse where you can kind of look down on the entrance hallway and we were standing up there watching people streaming in and my friend said to me he's like oh i fucking know what you're doing you're trying to recreate your teenager idol ideal <laughs> of punk that didn't turn out to be the real thing and i was just like yeah fuck man busted whatever <laughs> you know um and th- th- there are, i'm aware that there are people who waste their time and energy just debating whether or not what i do constitutes punk or not and I, for the record i couldn't give a fuck <laughs> um uh but but is the way that i arrange my affairs and present what i do influenced by growing up with punk rock yeah 100 of course it is mm-hmm. um is it an attempt to recreate it Yeah. Probably.
0: (laughs) No, well, that's the main thing is you do it because you love it and you do it unapologetically. But we're coming kind of to the end of the time. And I don't want to take too much more of your time off, especially on your day off when you're at home. (laughs) But you had kind of the best New Year's tweet this year that really made me laugh where it was your local newspaper had a feature of five suggestions of oh yeah skills. did you <laughs> mind any I, any of those five
1: uh no not really i mean my <laughs> local I, one of the the place we live has a local newspaper it's fortnightly and it's free and it is there's something just absolutely phenomenal about <laughs> this existence i adore it it is I, and, and, and i don't know who writes it and like it's a small community and Um, uh, but it's like, and it sort of veers wildly between being absolutely hilarious, um, uh, and, and, you know, kind of interesting. They sort of have local history and stuff like that. But yeah, that New Year's election was very, very good. I mean, I'm not sure, you know, I always joke that like I try and pick achievable New Year's resolutions, like don't kill anyone and don't try and <laughs> overthrow a democratically elected government and things like this, because then you get to December and get to celebrate having achieved your aims for the year. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, uh, I'd say t- it's funny. Like I, I, I'm much more of a kind of. I much prefer to look back at the end of the year than forward at the start yeah i mean like for example like i've i'm actually this is a tiny tiny thing but like um in 2022 i got i stopped having any nicotine in my life mm. the first time since i was 10 years old um and and it wasn't even that i was on a vape thing for mm. a while um i haven't smoked a cigarette in like five years and then now I, I gave up the vape and it actually wasn't that hard yeah. in the end. And it was kind of cool to sit uh, around with my missus on the years even be like, shit, like I I haven't had any nicotine in my system in like <laughs> months. So it's like, it's was the first time since I was a child. Um, awesome. And, you know, that's a nice thing. And I did, but I didn't at the start of 2022. I didn't be like
0: this year. Yeah.
1: So like, I think it's, um, there's something slightly, you can force yourself and then, and then end up kind of throwing it all up in the air and doing it. Yeah
0: yeah amazing well i think that's a really positive note to end <laughs> on and thank you so much man and um, let me just wish you all the best for the rest of the tour now you've got some dates in australia and things coming up as yeah well. it so, never
1: ends we're yeah. round and round and round so i will uh well, no doubt our paths will cross it on but thank you for your time man.
0: no amazing thank you so much mm-hmm. have it folks that's episode 62 of the rogue country podcast done and dusted thank you so much for tuning in and listening sorry about the technical difficulties but thank you so much to frank and his team for being so fucking nice and welcoming and rescheduling the next day that's so cool of them and i really do fucking appreciate it if this was your first time listening to the rogue country podcast thank you so much for tuning in i really do appreciate it make sure to leave some reviews but more importantly go back and check out our back catalog of incredible artists i've been so lucky and fortunate to talk to there is some incredible incredible artists in there well all of them are to be honest because they're all phenomenal people but please go listen and in the meantime keep supporting the things you love keep doing the things you love and keep it rogue peace